and welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. We're a week or so removed from the 2022 draft class, nine picks in the books and a number of free agents still waiting to be confirmed, but we thought we'd talk about them this week because it's all part of the clash. You never know where you can unfurl the latest gem. Um, there might not be an Arian Foster now, there's no running back, but to try and talk through the draft in a little bit more detail to round it out this week is Mr. Matt Robinson from the Battle Red blog. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me back on. I'm a little bit nervous following up uh, Jordan after last episode, but uh, congrats on the on the benchmark for views. Hoping to sort of round out the uh, draft process pretty nice here. Yeah, no, last week was a good one. Thanks to everybody who listened. I think the excitement definitely is kind of building I suppose in terms of it's the first step in the new era but I suppose you've got to, got to take it Matt is like a is a view that these guys are need to make a huge step up the holistic asks and requirements to make it from collegiate to a pro athlete is is huge and uh and, and there's definitely got to be something there that that you know you've got to temper expectations to a degree but what was your kind of top line view of the draft class uh well that's definitely a great point that it's a definitely a step up in competition and you know a lot of news was made in terms of like the conference's choice for our draft picks and you could argue that nick casario believes it's a, a decent step in competition also based on the wells he was drawing on and i think it was a little overrated in terms of the sec preference to me it just seemed like it was a uh, power five like strong programs name brand coaches things like that because even when he went away from the sec you saw stanford you saw tcu you saw baylor so really just good name brand programs in the draft. yeah and I, the more you kind of reflect on it it feels like there was a kind of it or a, a need to kind of get guys who you felt like probably didn't have as much bandwidth in terms of possibilities. I suppose Bar Stingley is the, probably the one that's got the widest range of outcomes. But for the vast majority of guys, it kind of felt like, I'd heard Peter King sort of verbalise this pre-draft, was about guys that you felt best would make a second contract. And I suppose the more you kind of process this draft class, it feels like those, those type of guys were targeted in a very kind of deliberate way with trade-ups, etc., which you saw through, you know, uh, uh, day two particularly. Definitely. Uh, I think uh, last time we were talking, we were mentioning sort of the uncertainty around uh, Nick Casario as a roster manager. And ironically, I think he's actually great as a talent evaluator. Like the, if we're just going off of last year's draft on this one, I think his real mark that's starting to become shown is his ability to find these role players that Bill O'Brien would famously talk about so much in terms of fitting their coaching staff schemes. That's something that really stood out to me these past couple of drafts. Yeah, I think so. And the, there seems a deliberate kind of of, of t- type of player. I, I don't know if necessarily that sort of character element was too overtly focused on, time will tell, uh, with that. But in terms of the top few guys in the first round, if we start with kind of Stingley, what do you kind of see his role being year one? I think that's what kind of, you know, we've got to kind of analyze these guys. What can he do year one? You know, because if you think Kareem Jackson, really tough year, first year as a pro, but bounce back. Even DeAndre Hopkins was a perennial all pro receiver, but year one contributions were limited. So you've kind of got to take that lens. These guys aren't going to be kicking the doors in from day one. But if anybody's going to do it, you've got to hope it's a third overall pick. I know Lovey said to him, just track the number one guy. How does, how does that sound? A little bit tongue in cheek, but what do you think is a feasible year one role for Derek Stingley? 
Um, I mean, obviously, just due to the depth chart, he's going to get thrown out there to the, the Wolves pretty quickly. Uh, I don't think that's anything that he's necessarily afraid of. But uh, the phrase that I've always heard is that playing cornerback in the NFL, uh, your rookie year is like drinking water through a fire hose. It's, it's a lot getting thrown at you and not a lot of support, especially if in order to get the best out of single, you're transferring more into like cover three single high looks. He's definitely going to be on an island, quote unquote. Uh, so he'll definitely get his chance. I think you just got to roll with the punches. Uh, corner is definitely one of those things where you need a short memory in order to survive. And he, we talked about his sort of even keel demeanor during the draft. I think that's going to serve him well as he's getting tested pretty heavily and early. And hopefully the schedule breaks right for him. So that way he's not getting beat up too quickly in the year. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because I think with him and particularly Petrie as well, the lack of pass rush is probably going to read its head because like Rashad Green, Mario Addison signings, albeit nice to have, you know, kind of, you know, in and around the roster and competing for complementary backup kind of type roles. But without that lack, with that lack of pass rush up front, those guys are not going to have many places to hide. They're going to be thrown right into the fire year one. And there may be some tough times ahead for both those guys. It'll be character building. I think that's for sure. But... As it pertains to Petrie, where do you see his role? Because, I mean, I think it's clear from his Baylor tape, he's not a safety. Um, I know he's been kind of listed as one. Uh, we talked about that with the star position and stuff last week. For me, it's day one. You put him in as a slot corner um, and you kind of give his role succinctly. Now, Lovey Smith is the slot corner coach, ironically, in this kind of organisational chart that we've got. So, for me, that's his day one position. Um, and you could perhaps expand the role thereafter. But where do you see him playing and what kind of role do you think Petrie can have because a little bit undersized um, there's a, you know the, the tangibles athleticism they're all first round but just the measurables perhaps weren't so what do you where do you see Petrie's role year one coming at the Big 12 um, I think he hit the nail on the head pretty well I could see him used as sort of like that third linebacker in some packages quite frequently in case they don't want to take away too much from uh, Tavier Thomas who really earned his keep last year although I think it's reasonable to expect some regression in that area. So I don't necessarily think he's penciled in like everyone keeps saying, although I do think he deserves a strong shot in camp. Uh, that being said, uh, he mentioned in his uh, post-draft uh, presser with the media that he saw himself as a safety. And then he didn't mention the, the slot defender and everything. Uh, but based on what happened last year, uh, as much as we want to say he's pigeonholed close to line of scrimmage, I think he more than likely will get some reps uh, in two high shells. And I don't think he's going to perform amazingly, but it's definitely something he is going to have to grow into. Uh, but to your point, I think he's exceptional around the ball. Like he would be the modern age defender. And I've sort of been beating this drum a little bit for most of the offseason. I think him and Stingley combined are proof that Tampa 2 is dead, figuratively speaking. I think we're going to see some evolution. We saw hints of it last season. And I think this really allows Lovey to sort of expand his playbook, so to speak, especially in blitzes where, as you mentioned before, we're not really that heavy in the pass rusher department. So I think him coming in downhill is going to be pretty vital to the defense getting some pressure. Well, that's it. I think I wrote an article out today and I think that it ultimately he's going to have to be creative. He's going to have to break tendencies. And um, aside from kind of bringing pressure from the second and third level, how do you see that coverage element of Lovey's scheme evolving in this second year of him being in the building, albeit gone from DC to HC uh, slash DC? But we kind of saw cover one, we saw cover three. I don't know if they've necessarily got this, that singular athlete to play cover one. Um, but how do you see that evolution of that coverage 
um, to try and mix it up because we were very, very static at times early in the year, very predictable, the, the holes in the zone that were open and teams could pick it apart really easily. You've hoped that sort of transition and that kind of progression of people being in the building, familiarity improves that. But where do you where do you see them really evolving that? Because I know his son, Miles, has talked about it a bit, how it evolved in college. What do you think we'll see from that, from that side or that part of the defense this year? Uh, well, you brought up the biggest point that I was uh, in my research that I just couldn't uh, kept scratching my head at who's playing single high in this defense. I just don't see anybody. I see a lot of slot guys. I see a lot of box defenders, a lot of guys able to come downhill, but I, I don't see anybody who can really uh, provide the support over the top in camp. The best uh, guy I saw was probably like Tristan McCollum, and that's mainly off of potential, not necessarily off of uh, his acumen in terms of uh, diagnosing plays. Uh I think it's going to be a bit of mix and match. You saw that he at times wanted to play man, but he just didn't have the horses for it. I think Derek Stingley in that regard is very much a, a bit of a stallion who can help him. Uh, honestly, I'm just a little bit uh, pessimistic in terms of how that's going to blend. I'm more just curious more than anything. Uh, I think preseason will be a, a big tell, especially like game three and how he wants to sort of use things. Yeah, no, I think so. And there'll be, there will be an element, I think, of playing cover three, I think at times they'll have to balance out the fact that you want to play more man. And I think that'll definitely, you'll see that. And I think that was the the, the need or the or the perceived need from the coaching staff's element of the input of the evaluation process that Derek Stingley could, ultimately you could blend your coverage if you have a guy like that. Um, we'll see where he is athletically pretty quickly. It's, as you said, it's a position you can't hide. Um, but both those guys are going to have a lot on their plate early doors. Just hope the coaching staff, and I'm sure Lovey will, I think of anything of an experienced head coach, you can have a guy who can allow people a, a platform for growth rather than just throwing them into the fire or hiding them unnecessarily. And you think Lovey's going to hopefully kind of give us that. Um, and certainly, the, one of the, of obviously the first pick at 15 in the first round, um, Green out of Texas A&M. We talked a bit about him last week, but I, th I think the, the book's probably out. I think a lot of people say he's definitely a guard, oversets at times, tends to get turned a little bit when he's kind of, when his feet and his hands don't match up necessarily at the point of attack. But there's an athlete there that, you know, that could potentially be a solid starter for you. Um, where do you see his role in year one? I suppose you, you kind of, can't pick a guy that high and not start for you. Um, ideally, you probably want him to come and have a role similar to Max Sharpen did in 2019, where you plug him in reasonably early, if not week one, and he plays and he's largely unnoticeable um, in the pass protection. Hopefully, you can see some plus blocking in the run game. But what do you think uh, Kenyon Green's role is year one? Um. I mean, you hit a lot of great points uh, to go back to the previous podcast. I think the best point that y'all brought up was that it would kind of be a blessing if he was next to Laramie Tunsil, since they would sort of offset each other's skill set, so to speak. Uh, I was a, I didn't think so during the cycle, but I guess I was a bit more bullish on him than most of the people. I didn't think he was much of a reach at 15. Uh, going back to the summer, I thought he was going to be locked and loaded as one of my top interior guys. And sure enough, he was, uh, he technically was my interior three, but it was like 1A, 1B with him and Zion. I just thought they sort of uh, 
were very neck and neck. Uh, I don't think the athleticism is necessarily an issue. I didn't really see any athleticism problems uh, in terms of the film. I just saw that maybe he was a little slow to drag his feet with him. That's about it. Uh, and the thing that I like about most is one, he's still growing into his body. You can clearly see, I think he can be a monster, especially if you tell him you're just gap, you just gotta put on some mass and just move some bodies. I think he'll excel in that. And then also all of the issues that I see with him are very coachable. They're very fixable. Whereas all the pros that I see with him are things that we've been dying to have on this offensive line for ages. Do you see the way he sorts through traffic? You see the way he sort of diagnosed to the second level. I mean, I can't tell you how many all 22 threads of Matt Weston I've gone through where he's just like, this guy misses this one. He passes it off to the, they pass it off to each other. Uh, it would be very nice to see a sort of change in that guard, so to speak. Yeah, well, having a player inside that can understand that you you need to you know lean into you know a, a block or a double team, and then you know there will be a hole that will emerge from either side, and you got to go and fill that hole pretty quickly. It's something that you know if you think of all the guys we've had, not to go back to you know revision of history, but has not been good enough by any stretch of the imagination. Giving up a lot of cheap pressures, a lot of you know failed drives because of that exact thing. So if that's the one thing he comes and improves, that may sure up the interior for this team this year and I, I where that where that leaves us I don't know um, but the the next pick 44th overall was John Mechie obviously coming off the ACL he had more drops and touchdowns last year I, he's a kind of guy who didn't necessarily wow you but he would do everything well again it's that kind of is he a, is he a more of a sure thing to make the second contract you know, there was taking over a number of players there. It felt a little bit high uh, for him. Again, I don't know if it was overvalue of culture, but, you know, he's a shifty guy that could be Mills's best friend, I think, at, at times. And um, John Mechie, what do you see his role being? I suppose a slot receiver in this offense still need to probably fully understand how that'll be utilized under Pip. Uh, yeah, very fair, especially with uh, Brandon Cooks and Nico Collins very much still on the roster. Brandon Cooks getting that... Uh, extension earlier when you saw receivers just flying off the shelf. Uh, and to that point, I think that's where his escalated value came from. You saw receivers going heavy and early in the draft. Uh, from my understanding, it looked like Baltimore was getting ready to replace Hollywood Brown. If we didn't up and take him, I, he seems like a New England guy. They were lurking around, looking to upgrade receiver. They ended up going uh, Taekwon Thornton. I don't know if that was before or after us, so to speak. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but I loved him coming into the summer. Uh, I first He first popped on my radar when he filled in for Jalen Waddle last year uh, in the slot. I saw a lot of great things from him. Seth Payne had the greatest quote in the cap-and-trade podcast where he basically said, if Julian Edelman had just never played quarterback, John Mechie is more than likely who he'd end up looking like. Uh, super smart. His releases, I thought he was faster at first when I started watching him just because he was off the line so quick. Uh, and during the first few games, I actually liked him a lot better than Jameson Williams, to be honest, until I saw the sort of athletic floor that he had. Uh, the concentration drops are definitely an issue. I think that's something that needs to get cleaned up, but I think it can get cleaned up. You saw that with Will Fuller. He became less of a body catcher the longer he got going. Uh, but I think he fits this offense to a T. I think he fits Nick Casario to a T. Uh, going back to that cap and trade, Seth also said uh, that Nick viewed everything in sort of clusters and he didn't get attached to players. But if you look at uh, Rivers McCown's post-draft piece and the quotes that Nick said uh, in terms of like when he was throwing praise on him, he, he was 
very much a fan of John Mechie. You could tell that that was definitely one of his guys that he had a crush on just from everything about him. He just seemed like a total Casario type of player. And I'm a little worried him coming off the injury. Uh, he, it's not his first injury either. He also had a couple of knee surgeries, I believe, earlier on in his college career. Uh, so that's definitely alarming, especially with the size concerns. Uh, and as smart as he is, and he's said he was tracking back for a July return, he's going to be missing mini rookie camp. And that's, uh, that's not insignificant, you know, as smart as he is, it's going to be definitely an adjustment process to basically be falling behind the eight ball in year one. Well, well, that's it. And I think you, rookies that miss time, there's not a long, long list of people here in this league that necessarily have the best career if they miss it because, you know, that you don't get those reps back. You don't get the chance to learn. And when you're making rookie mistakes in year two, that's a surefire way to piss off a coach and staff to, to get you cut. Also, he had an enlarged heart that he had to come, you know, that he had to take some time off, um, etc. You know, he's a very, you know, varied background um, from, you know, living in various countries and stuff. So, yeah, I think Caserio did... Um, or was it praised him overly versus others, and I think that was that was clear. So we're still waiting on the undrafted free agent guys being confirmed. So we could talk about these guys here, Matt, and they might never even walk in the building. So we'll caveat everything we say with that. But it's all it's almost a far more interesting part for me than the fifth and sixth rounds, and even the seventh to a degree, definitely the seventh, because agents ultimately want their guys to go undrafted because they're going to get a bigger signing bonus. Obviously, not confirmed, so we've not seen the contract details. There were some reports of what teams had paid signing bonuses, um, and there were some chunky ones this year. Um, and ultimately, like the likelihood of an undrafted free agent, statistically, has got a good chance, particularly 7th and 6th round, less so 5th. But the the quality of player, or the perceived quality of player, and the and the ability to make the next jump to the pros is probably going to be bigger as an undrafted free agent. So there's a number of names there that, you know, we can go back and forth on them. But was there any guys that, that you had a draftable view of that they've picked up? Uh, the only guy, or the only two guys that were on my list was the uh, Myron Cunningham from Arkansas. Uh, the only issue I had with him was just a lack of foot speed so to speak. But I think he came in as like a heavy 325. If you drop some weight, ideally, you'd like to think that that foot speed can improve with some technique. Uh, and then the other guy that I had listed down was uh, Colby Harvey Peel from OK State. I, I looked at him from the year before. He, he was pretty good. Uh, and then also I got a big look at him in the Big 12 championship game against Baylor. I was pretty invested in that as a Baylor fan. And, and he looked great. Uh, I in terms of like people that I think can actually come in and make an impact, though, aside from Cunningham, the guy that I, upon review, liked was Damian Daniels from Nebraska. I looked at him and I saw uh, exactly what I think we needed uh, in terms of a rotational, like run stuffing one tech guy. So that way it's not just all on Roy Lopez's shoulders. I think he'd be great in there. And then I think the person who has the best chance to carve out a role would be Tristan McCollum. Uh, from Sam Houston, and just terms of raw athleticism, he has the best ability to make a, a staying impact. But he's he's got a long way to go. Uh, when I was watching him, most of the highlights came from him coming down and run support, not necessarily him making these big plays in coverage, so to speak. So we take Myron Cunningham then, because I watched a number of games with him, and I'm you know, coloring me intrigued, right? Because I think there's a there's definitely an element there of it's messy. 
at times. Like you said, the foot speed does not match the hand speed, but he's got 34 and a half inch arms and that bails him out a number of times. But if you watch him against Bama, if you watch him against Auburn, um, if you watch him against Texas last year, all those games that I kind of flicked through today and in a couple last week, and there's something to like there, and you can see why does it, and it, and it doesn't look good at times, but he's so effective. There's you know, I was you know, I kept flicking on the next place, but he's going to blow one soon. He's going to blow one soon. He's going to give up a TFL. He's going to give up a sack, and he doesn't. And I think you know we talked about it a little bit, a little bit last week that. Ultimately, Laramie Tussle's not going to be here for a long time. And I think, you know, people are going to make peace of that. And your needs of today are not your needs of tomorrow. So, you know, guys like this intrigue the hell out of me because ultimately, you know, they could come in and play a role. And look, I've, I've kind of had my eyes set on, you know, undrafted free agents many a time and it's never come to fruition. Um, but certainly I think mine and Cunningham has a, you know, and he, he's a guy that is a Juco transfer from Illinois. Um, you know, he played two seasons in the SEC, serviceable big program. He's got all the, the okay, he's, he's 40 times in the five. So, you know, I think it was like five to eight or something. So, you know, that'll kind of rule him out, I think as, you know, as well in terms of analytical kind of, you know, kind of, sketches on him but there's something there that I like and there's a lot there's a, a play against Auburn where he pulls from the, the, the left tackle spot because my, my knock on him was I thought he's light with his hands and I, I thought in pass protection at times he is um, but there's a play where he comes around and he converts that 325 pounds mass to power at, at the second level and you hear it on the broadcast which is quite hard to do at a college game because the volume is a lot louder than some of the some of the country club fields you get at the pros and you hear it. Um, so I can see why they like him. Um, George Warhop will be a project for him, the def- or the offensive line coach. But yeah, there's something there that I think is likeable. Uh, it's transferable, a lot of work. But I think if you compare it to say what Charlie Heck's state was like coming at North Carolina, I think it's better than that. And Heck was a fourth round pick because he came for pedigree, etc. So, you know, not all players are created equal, but once you're in the building, it doesn't matter where the hell you're drafted. So Cunningham might be completely wrong. And as we said, we might not even sign the guy. But I think for me, he was interesting. Yeah, definitely agree with that. In terms of uh, the people that we've signed, uh, there's room for him to make an impact, especially not just this year, but a couple of years down the road, if he can actually stick with the roster. Well, that's it. And I think, you know, you can never have enough tackles in the building if you can find the way IR stash him in his first year or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, then then that, that might be the way to go. But that he, he's certainly one that I think for me is is, is, is interesting. Now, the second name you mentioned, Col- Col- uh, Colby Harville Peel from Oklahoma State. Um, he kind of plays both safety spots at times. He, he's got a terrible habit. We talked about safeties coming down and missing missing their kind of their, their angle or taking the wrong pursuit angle um, on ball carriers. There's a play against uh, Iowa State where him and the corner both get fixated on. I think it's the slot receiver, and then Charlie Kolar is up for a you know a long gain sort of thing. And there's a couple of other plays where he kind of gets caught underneath at times. Very very kind of uh, nosy as a safety. Definitely he's got a special teams role I think in terms of getting downfield. The, the athleticism there again didn't run necessarily a great 40 times so I think that probably pushed them down because people are so fixated on speed I think he is probably a guy who can play in a cover two shell within time but for me there's definitely a guy there who can at times looks like a draftable safety um, he makes a great stop I can't think it's the game against TCU uh, on a, a third and one and he comes down and he when he gets it right 
it looks great and I think that could transfer to special teams where there's less traffic there's less sort of reading of the cues and over time perhaps you can develop them into something but yeah at a spot where we're definitely weak on this roster and I think you know people are expecting um, Eric Murray to kind of play a role you want as many options as possible to kind of come and, and fill that so I think there's there's uh, there's definitely a lot to like about Peel. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I was sort of, as I was going through these guys, in just terms of making it relatable to people, I was trying to think of uh, guys on the roster that they compared to. And when I was looking at him, I thought AJ Moore replacement in terms of just like fourth or fifth safety. Uh, he's at his best when he's coming downhill. Uh, the ball production, I think, is a little misleading. Uh, I think it won't necessarily translate, but I love his instincts and zone. I don't think you necessarily want to put him on an island. I don't think you want to put a ton of responsibility, but in terms of underneath play, I think he's really smart uh, at just dialing in. Uh, the downside of that is, as you mentioned, his aggression can sort of be a double-edged sword for him. And so that's something he needs to rein back a little bit and pick his battles. And I think special teams would allow him to sort of reign free. Yeah, I think special teams. I'm not quite sure if he's got he's got the, quite the speed over that forty time as a, as a gunner, but certainly in the the second third wave coming uh, down there, then I think that's he's a guy that you can hope to clear. You would want to be the last line of defence. I think you know if you put him out on defence early, I'm sure you'll see him in the preseason get caught out. I'd, I'd put money on that, but an interesting one. Now a third one you talked about, and again we talked about last week, but it's good to dive into these guys. Damian Daniels from Nebraska, first step quickness is something. If you watch the Michigan State, I put out a, a kind of. A, a screen grab of his get off going up against the centre he's got a really good ability to get off the ball quickly and he's probably his go to and his best and probably arguably his only move but he kind of swims over very quickly um, and can kind of fit kind of you know kind of kind of squeeze up and in, into the gap up and between the you know the A and the B gap there um, predominantly A gap kind of guy he's as you said he's, he consumes double teams he definitely translates it sort of 3-2-5 is a, is a one tech and I think we need some deep like that because ultimately I think Lopez kind of played a lot of one tech kind of responsibility last year at times um, you perhaps want him as a three the more that he shows kind of a blitz ability or a rush ability because he did start to get pretty good at that um, at points last year um, great against the run but ultimately you need two of everything in this four man front so yeah a guy who potentially could make the make the roster and again probably pushes guys like Ross I know albeit not exactly the same role but numbers in there with Booker Ross Blacklock might be outside looking in if they're going to give him another chance uh, because you can probably only take four to five guys in the interior there but Daniels I thought shows a lot um of promise I think in terms of potential because those kind of guys there's not a lot between you know a fourth round nose tackle and an undrafted guy you know the margins are pretty thin it's not a glamorous job <laughs> there's only so much that can show up you're not going to show up the stats column there's different ways to win leverage and technique in the trenches so yeah I think that, you know of the of the three perhaps Daniels is up there as a kind of intriguing guy that you know that, that, that may find maybe a practice roster kind of a guy you're one but uh, you know a lot to like there on his tape at Nebraska and uh, if he's going to be the next Gerard Crick number 93 from Nebraska then you know that might be <laughs> that might be another one that translates over yeah there de definitely worse possibilities for him to end up being as staff yeah uh, to your point I think the Ross Blacklock uh, is very interesting considering how this draft went you we expected a lot of edge uh, help especially with the depth of this class and what we got in return was a three tech and a one te technique out of this and so 
he was definitely had some surges last year, a little bit up and down. I think this, this draft has definitely put him on notice, and it'll definitely be a, a storyline to watch during camp to see how he makes it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think and there's there's a there's yeah there's stuff to like. Was there any other guys remaining out of that class then that you you kind of picked up on? I think for obviously everybody will be or a lot of Cougs will be familiar with Seth Green, obviously transferred from Minnesota. Um, I don't think he necessarily kind of fills a role we don't have, but ultimately, yeah, I think tight ends probably up there as as you said were one of the positions that that could be filled. Um, I think they'll probably sign another veteran. Perhaps not. Maybe they'll, you know, they, they were pretty quick to bring back uh, both guys, um, Pharaoh Brown and and, uh, and Anthony O'Clair, at a premium to what they were here at last year as well, which was interesting. Um, so they may not, but uh, was there any other guys there on that list that you think might be potential? Uh, the only guy that stood out to me was maybe like a Jake Hansen from Illinois, Lovey's alma mater. Uh, Injuries, definitely a concern. He's had season-ending injuries, I think, all three years. Uh, but I, I love his instincts. I love the way he reads his keys. We, we talk about all the weaknesses that Christian Harris had that stops him from being a Mike. I think Jake Hansen is sort of the flip side of that, where maybe he's not the most athletic type, but he tends to be in the right spot at the right time. I just The only thing that I worry about is that he's not necessarily an NFL type of body. I think he can get swallowed up pretty quickly, but he definitely stood out to me in that regard. Yeah, and a guy, the Jacoby uh, Francis uh, from Memphis, I think he's one that's kind of interesting as well because he had ball production number six interceptions, ten and a half TFLs, kind of rushing um, off the edge. Again, if that you know if that skill set then projects as a nickel, uh, we're kind of that's probably the one spot we've actually kind of got a bit of a logjam at. So you know, is Desmond King a potential cut? I don't know uh, if they're going to play him outside, but it certainly feels like there's options there to potentially move on if you don't think. Um, Kings necessarily there as you said and Tristan McCollum as well loves his Zion's brother uh, you know they both played on the same team but I think there's definitely uh, a need for athleticism there um, on the back end the two wide receivers yeah well, we'll see you know limited limited uh, limited um, kind of thing I need to dig into Hinesh or whatever you describe it from or have you pronounce it rather from from Notre Dame um Again, like decent record, seven and a half sacks, 20, 20 for a loss over college. So again, these guys, he could be in there with Daniels. Daniels is a bit more flashier on his tape, uh, but a real potential there um, from, yeah, you knew we were going to take somebody from Illinois at some point. So so Hansen comes in. Uh, but the, the wide receiver Estrada, I think he's got, and again, it comes back to his character point of view, and this is a bit of a swing, but he's a Dartmouth transfer. Um and there's a tendency to like those guys in the building. You've seen them to go back to Stanford all the time. He'll be given chances to make this roster. And I think there's probably a potential to beat a Chris Moore out, um, to beat a Chris Conley out at a lower value. You know, are those guys ready? You can tell from their, you know, their production. No, but there's some interesting names in there. Definitely, uh, I think it's at the very worst, like worth a, a camp tryout. That's for sure. Uh, he. He didn't really pop a lot at Baylor to me. Uh, I think he was more of just like a steady Eddie, reliable guy. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about him. Like, we'll, we'll see if he works out. I think he definitely has a chance to be sort of like wide receiver five, wide receiver six in there. I don't know if he really adds a lot in the special teams game. So I'm not sure if he'll be able to crack the roster uh, on that note. Uh, and then the other guy from Oregon, uh, he didn't really stand out to me that much. I thought he sort of got lost in the weeds a little bit. Uh, well, hopefully we'll see if he works out. Uh, Seth Green, uh, 
in terms of that guy, I think he has the best chance of in terms of receiving talent on these on the UDFA list as sort of like a power slot. Uh, I don't think we really have somebody in that type of mold. I think he can come in and help out and sort of like an uh, an opposite to Jordan, uh, Brevin Jordan, who could be he's more of like an H back hybrid role. So this week or some have already trickled out already today in terms of the week two prime times. Um, by Thursday night or late Thursday, Friday morning, we'll have an idea of, well, we'll, we'll know the exact Texans schedule for this year. Um, I think this year, Matt perhaps has the ability to be a tougher one, particularly um, at home, I think. And we obviously we've got, instead of last year, we had Carolina at home as the extra home game this year. That flips and we've got an extra road game to try and find our way through. Um particularly Mills's propensity to be better at home or on the road, I think will be something to watch as well. And you'll get a bigger sample size of road games this year. Um, just the way the schedule kind of kind of yeah, falls out. Um, so in terms of the in terms of kind of prime time, that's the one that everybody kind of looks at, prime time fixtures. Um, the Browns certainly seems like it could be one and it could get a little bit spicy in the stands that night, potentially, depending on the, 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 the suspension. But is there, a, is, there, is, there a, is there a second prime time game in there, uh, potentially the Cowboys? And do you think, uh, do you, do you think they will grant the... Do you think they'll, they'll get comfortable with the uncomfortable and, and do the Watson trade and probably do it in a very kind of football non-human type build-up and coverage, etc. And we could get some additional storylines and tidbits about the departure and all that and the lead-up to that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, in regards to the pending suspension, uh, if there was any dirt to sort of be had on Deshaun or any sort of uh, uh, dirty laundry to be aired out, I would do it right before the suspension get announced. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on how long it would be just because the league is so inconsistent in terms of the severity of, of crimes versus the uh, punishment. You look at uh, Calvin Ridley getting a full year, whereas like multiple other people with like battery assaults are getting like four games, six games, and then appealing it down into lower amounts. So I'm curious to see how that shakes out. Uh, Dallas was the one primetime game I had highlighted sort of the other only other person or team that would make sense to me would be maybe sort of like a, a Philly or Denver. Uh, that'd be sort of interesting to see. Uh, I, I didn't hear the tidbit about week two. I wasn't sure about that one. What, what was the. Uh, oh, not for us. It was the Titans or Monday Night Football or something. On the, oh, OK. Uh, yeah. On the Bills. Yeah. Gotcha. But yeah, I, I, I think that that was good. An interesting one because I think it will take a incredibly sort of inhumane kind of football uh, NFL, the shield, the brand kind of will we'll bulldoze any kind of uh, or, or certainly or bury any kind of narrative unless that comes out that that court progression, you know, is progresses. But I think you're, you're in the you're in the you're in the a long line of, of people waiting for that to kind of process through Harris County. So I think the expectation right now is, and again, it's, it's not great to be talking about it, but that he will, you know, not be suspended this year and, and, and we'll see, which, you know, doesn't necessarily bode well for the value of that draft pick that we've got for next year. So, you know, we will see the Browns is one of our AFC opponents uh, at home, um, as well as Washington, Philly, Kansas City, and the Chargers, I think you know. You know when you couple that with the divisional games, which were always 
are always tricky because the familiarity breeds contempt and everybody kind of knows what everybody does, particularly by the second game. Obviously, there'll be some changes on our offensive scheme this year. Um, an underrated storyline, I think we need to dig into a bit and how that transitional will will make. But, and you know, I think that there's a big part of that, of how, of, of what, of those uh, home games, you know, what order do they come in? Because ultimately, in a season where you know the odds are probably stacked against you, if you look from a pure talent on paper point of view, if you play Kansas City, uh, you know, and the Chargers, and say you know the Browns, in the space of if you take those three games in the space of six weeks, you're looking at a tough stretch of the season. I think that's a bit underrated, but but how the schedule actually pans out for you and creates a path, you know, to potential wins. I agree, uh, and so much of this is going to be centered around. Uh the microscope is going to be under Davis Mills this year. I think we'll see how the line shakes out, but Casario really has just done a full like Joe Douglas impression in terms of answering all the questions in terms of weapons that could be at his disposal. Uh, so a lot of, I think you hit it on your article that released today, yesterday, something like that. Shout out podcast.com. Uh, you hit on the net in ter- the head in terms of, uh, tempering expectations. It's not like it's just going to be, oh, Tim Kelly's gone. We can all celebrate now. I think there is going to be some growing pains uh, in terms of Pep getting his stuff. And I'm really curious what the, that first four game stretch is. Uh, it's changed since it's like 17 games, but I used to be taught to just break down the season into like four game quarters. And a lot can be had in those quarters. And I think uh, getting somebody early versus later on in the season uh, when they're not necessarily as gelled together could help things out. You look at teams like uh, like Jacksonville with Trevor Lawrence still sort of up in the air. You look at teams that like Denver, who's bringing in a new quarterback and everybody's still trying to figure out where who fits where. Uh, I would love to see Denver early just because of how scary that that's the defense that scares me the most for Mills to go up against. I think they're loaded in the secondary, which is going to put more pressure on that offensive line to hold up. Uh, That's something that I would look forward to. And then also Indianapolis bringing in Matt Ryan. Uh, They're more than likely looking like AFC South sort of favorites, so to speak. And I think uh, getting one on them when they're still finding their groove and necessarily uh, relying on Jonathan Taylor would be a big benefit for us in the long haul. Yeah, I don't necessarily fear Tennessee this year as such. I think you should have really feared the home points because you can see even last year on a down year, freaky game in the rain in Nashville, however many turnovers they gave up, you got an unexpected win. I think, you know, that was probably the one you expected, at least considering they were sitting first in the AFC, obviously flamed out in the playoffs, but you kind of saw what they were. It was an amazing coaching job to get the most out of a talent that had loads and loads of injuries. And I think, you know, but but then a team that did have injuries last year was the Chargers came in or were COVID uh, omissions from this rather than pure injuries. But, you know, that was a game that you didn't expect to win either. So, you know, any team can win four, five, six, even seven games in a 17 game schedule now. Um, you know, that that's more than plausible. So, like, you know, when I say temper expectations, it's more about the individual progression of the players, I think, moreover. But these are the games, and this is the sample size that, you know, no more than anyone else is Davis Mills that we need to try and understand what he is. And until you can see those flashes over a long period of time um, in terms of a 17-game schedule, if that is a consistent to 78% of the time, yeah, you've got a potential viable option there. But if it's less than that, um, you know, and the screen pass is hitting the dirt like there was last year, if you're getting blown out four or five times, Times, uh, then, then that's a concern, and I think you're back in a very similar position where you are now. You know, it would be naive to think you can fill needs and trans- transform your team 
via the draft in one year. It just doesn't happen. It's just not feasible. I think you can get lucky, you can get contributors, but you know, we may have enough kind of thoroughbred, kind of, you know, long time NFL vets that can allow these guys to learn quickly and contribute quickly. Uh, but you're asking there's a lot of if and buts in there to kind of, you know, come and come come together all at once. And I think the, sh- the schedule is fascinating because I kind of grouped it and, you know, if we take just round up on the home games, I think, you know, I could see us taking two wins out of those home games, um, and Washington's absolutely Philly's a toss up. I think you know yeah. they're not necessarily the great roster, but they've certainly added on offense and and uh, depending on where we are defending the run. But I think you know you can see three or four games games there. I think the Kansas. I think will be there will be games at this the, this year that we are completely overmatched. I think Kansas City, uh, the Chargers, in which the way they've they've uh, they have develop their squad and you know trade and being aggressive and JC Jackson and Khalil Mack etc um, and the Browns and I think that the, the the premonition I had certainly this morning was you could have Watson returning and they could blow us out in a big 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 way um, and I don't think you know that's something I'm going to probably mentally prepare for now uh, because I think that's something that could well happen because if you look at that roster particularly on defence they probably maybe you know and they might have Will Fuller there as well you know to try and round out that offence I know Schwartz they got out for Auburn's a burner but there's certainly guys on that roster on paper um, that I think that could be a potential game. You know, there's there's probably those three games of the home games that I wouldn't count our chances. And I think right now, based on what you know where we are on paper, now it could, can come together. You know, very well as it did week one and Tyrod Taylor last year just surprised everybody. And um, but you know we were reliant on turnovers. I don't think we'll get again that this year. So I've kind of grouped those first three games um, is you know of the home of the home slate anyway. Certainly is ones that. That, that may be uncomfortable afternoons like like the Colts at home last year, like when the, the LA Rams visited last year, it was very, very one-sided. And even the Seattle game at that sense again. So, you know, when you start to see three or four kind of potential games where you're you're just short of firepower to compete with these teams, uh, that that is perhaps, you know, something to bear in mind, I think. And uh, But what do you think of that, that Watson scenario potentially coming back and uh, make us regret it a little bit? Ooh, uh, it's super real. I would hate it personally. I mean, we were. Doing- oh yeah, I mean that would be tough to deal with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you're you're talking about the guy that got Chad Hansen paid in Detroit, you know, just for making him look like a complete all star, and you're telling me that he can't do that with you know Donovan Peoples Jones and and Anthony Schwartz, like. I- yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, not to mention that running game that he has that he and that offensive line. So it, it's definitely very real. Uh, I think. You mentioned pretty much the rough part of the schedule was entirely the AFC West. Like it was just a rough draw for us to land that division. Super tough division. Uh, I would rather play a lot of those teams later on in the year, just with the sheer hope of maybe some injury attrition, sort of like that Tennessee game last year that we were talking about, sort of giving us maybe uh, an equalizer in the personnel department. I, I know that sounds like a, a weak way to pin your hope on, but that that's where we're at. Uh, as we're waiting for a few more drafts to sort of bolster up the reserves. Yeah, and when you look at the away slate again, you know you can always you can all you know every team, regardless of badger, you can probably get squeeze a win on the road against your divisional opponent. So that's probably one of the flaws I think of the the architecture of the of the way in which the fixtures are now. Playing these teams twice, it does become a bit repetitive. It's not the greatest. It kind of limits your choices as a fan. But in terms of those road games, um, I kind of again grouped it in a couple of but. You know, into a couple of boxes. I think there is there's New York, 
Chicago and Miami. All great, three great trips if you want to go and take a vacation to go and watch this team, definitely. But I think they're all winnable games. I think absolutely, yes. you know, I think those 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 teams are in a similar position to us. You know, questionably we're behind them. Um, and then I think, you know, there's there's definitely three of those games. Um, so there's six of those that are toss-ups right now. So actually, when you look on as a percentage chance of winning on the road, I think it looks quite good. Um, certainly our quarterback, as you said, didn't necessarily perform that. So that'll be, you know, that's the biggest transition, I think. You know, that's the biggest thing you take. Where the performances on the road in line with the ones at home? And I think, you know, if you can answer that question at the end of the season, it's a big step forward. But then if you look down at the next bucket of games, I think there's, there's ones that are a toss-up. And obviously you put all the divisional ones in the toss-up. Mm-hmm. And then I think Dallas on the road, which is a good chance to be a primetime game uh, because that division just over-indexes in, 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 uh, in television coverage and it always will probably till the end of time. Uh, so that and the Raiders, I think, going there. It's an interesting environment. Um, it's going to be a lot of travelling road fans. Obviously, it's not the biggest populace to, to, to host a 90,000-seater and have you know genuine home fans they're kind of similar to the two teams moving to LA. It's predominantly road fans, tourists, etc. So it's an interesting environment. There's no real home advantage there. Um, I think that that's one that potentially, you know, we could, we could, uh, or toss ups there, I think, in those, in those kind of uh, slates. What do you think of the, or how do you view that away slate? Because I think you've got Denver at the top, which I think could be a juggernaut this year and could yeah. do what the Rams did last yeah. year and go all the way. And I think, you know, the, the missing piece, probably the best roster in the AFC um, now that they've added you know Wilson I think just depends where he is um, and how that scheme but I think you know similar to Watson going to the Browns I think that sort of West Coast Nathaniel Hackett Shanahan Kinnitry will suit Wilson really well and I think there's ability for that just to, to hit the ground running so in terms of their way slate would you kind of agree that's the that's the right ballpark where we are in terms of in terms of uh, you know got a couple of potentials number of toss ups in Denver could be a could be one of those uh, similar to what we had in Buffalo, perhaps this last season pass. Yeah, Buffalo or uh, or the Rams. I think that's a good thing. Denver scares the heck out of me this year. They really do. I, they're loaded in the secondary. They added some horses on the pass rush, and I mean, they for the past three years they're sort of loaded on weapons. They had to trade a tight end away just so they can snag a quarterback, and they still have plenty of talent to boot. Uh, but more on that, I think you hit a lot of it on the head. Uh, I think that was a really good point in terms of the uh, the Chargers and the Raiders stadium sort of being not necessarily predominantly a home crowd. I think that's a good point to hit on and maybe leaves you a little bit of room for some traveling fans to help out. I would love to see some more fans travel out this year as we get a little bit closer to some hopeful uh, competitiveness. Uh, the Dallas game, I'm curious how it's going to go. I, I'll actually probably be there. I mean, my, my uh, in-law side of the family is big Cowboys fans much to my chagrin. So if you want to link up, I'll more than likely be heading out to that week. Hmm. Yeah, well, I was there in 2014 and it was it was probably about 55, 60% Texans at that point. Obviously a very different uh, stage yes, of the evolution so. of the team and, you know, of, you know, an established defensive line. Um, you were just a quarterback away, apparently. I think kind of similar what kind of Denver position they're in. But yeah, I think that's that's a great a, a great a great one to visit. You'll always get a good good road crowd. Um, I don't. I think they're already slated to play Buffalo on Thanksgiving. So I think that's that's maybe because that would be a, a great oh, scenario. Amazing, I think. Yeah. yeah uh, I don't think that'll probably ever happen. Just in case, but but uh, I, I think that that's a non possibility. But yeah, I think obviously you've got the Vegas one, you have got the Miami one, you got the Chicago as well. So there there is winnable games on this schedule. So you think maximum, absolute maximum, two prime time in this year? 
yeah, uh, just, I mean, just based on the league's history with us and, and these years especially, I think they're more than likely going to sweep this under the rug, so to speak. Yeah, and I think so. And I think there's an element of kind of comfortability in that as well, right? But I, I think another big part of it is when you've got Wilson, Mahomes, Herbert, all on your schedule. Um, how well are they spaced out? Because I think if you, you get a, a bad run of games that can throw you off early, you then pick up a couple of injuries, you know, you've seen it multiple times. It happens to teams every year. It can snowball very quickly. And I think the those winnable games like we talked about, the three on the road, uh, New York, Chicago, Miami, whether it be the, you know, the Eagles at home, whether it be, uh, you know, Washington at home, you want those games to kind of come back to back, I think, to give you a chance to build momentum. Because I think on a 17-game stretch, you will ebb and flow on that momentum. But I think, Matt, you can't underestimate how much that can change the complexion of a season. So true. Uh, this is where I put on my Ray Lewis voice and say that momentum is, in fact, real. No, I'm kidding. Uh, just <laughs> yeah. when I was talking about like my ideal like four-team lineup to sort of get the ball rolling and get uh, Mills' confidence growing, as well as sort of mitigating some of the scarier people we can see. The four the four team lineup that I'm scariest of or most afraid of would be some combination of uh, L.A., Denver, uh, Kansas City, sandwiched in between like a, uh, the Cleveland game. I think that would be a, a rough three game stretch to just go like through buzzsaw after buzzsaw. Uh, so that's definitely something I'm afraid of. Uh, I think uh, Miami, as much as it's a winnable game, I'm nervous how their blitzing tendencies are going to happen. I don't know if they're carrying the same sort of scheme that they did with Brian Flores or not. I don't know who's the coordinator over there, actually. But based on how they treated us last year, I think that's definitely going to put the O-line to a test. And we've seen one of the biggest knocks on Mills is that he needs to speed his clock up a little bit. Otherwise, he takes unnecessary punishment. So that would definitely be the most frightening sort of lineup to face midseason. Yeah, all that see, you got to take them in kind of four or sometimes now five game clusters and and see and see where where that leads you. And I think yeah, that there's an element of that could define Mills's career and his tenure with the Texans in terms of that because if you have a four game stretch early back to back, if you just say for example in the first six games or the first eight games we don't you know prior to the bye week you don't get two home games back to back, it's certainly going to be you know it, it just adds to the challenges. I think you know when you think the odds of a third round pick of you know somebody that kind of had limited starts in college. You know, statistically speaking, um, and looking on the tape, um, there's a lot of undue pressure on him. And I, I think there's definitely something that, that, you know, I think people have been unfair to lump it on him. I think if the franchise are doing what they can and they think, you know, if you hit, this turns this whole thing on its head very, very quickly. But, you know, you'll see there's a lot of big defences to go up. And, you know, as it pertains to division, obviously, it's, a, you know, a huge percentage of your, of your games in terms of the concerns you have in terms of how we match up against Jacksonville, Tennessee and Indy, how do you, how do you view that as before the schedule comes out Thursday? Uh, the biggest person or the biggest team that I'm afraid of would probably be Indy just because they have shown a propensity to be able to run the ball down our throats. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I'm very happy that if Damian Daniels is able to work out, that would be a huge win for us as we could contribute. Uh, Jacksonville, I'm very curious to see how Trevor Lawrence progresses because I think that hinges on how many we could maybe sneak away from them. You can maybe uh, have him view it as sort of a revenge game where he gets up to go for us because we he threw his first interception to us. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I'm nervous about is just how how many horses we have in the secondary that are going to be able to keep up with the lack of a pass rush. 
Uh, I don't think Jacksonville has a ton of weapons out there, but I think they have enough to sort of throw some wrinkles. Uh, I think the person that scares me the most out of all of them would still probably be Indy, though. Yeah, no, I think so. And you're 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 right. I think potentially you've got the the best roster. I think you know, basically the best coaching job's been done in Tennessee, and that complete unknown is is Jacksonville. And you think of Doug Peterson. I think you know. I think he was a, obviously Byron Left, which was the the meant to be head coach, and it by default of the <laughs> the disagreement or with the with the GM choice, and um, you know, and bold to get your first H, you know head coaching job and try and get force a GM change as you do it. But um, I think there's there's definitely you know, an element of we could be the fourth team inside looking in. I think but a big part of that will be the run defence and how we do it because every single one of those teams can run it. Um, a little bit change up front with Jacksonville, but I was a big fan of Luke Fortner um, going there as centre as a power, you know, as a power player um, in terms of that. And I think, you know, they obviously signed Cam Robinson back up and they believe in him. But yeah, how well can we defend the run in the division? I think such an underrated uh, because at times it was good uh, but you've got to remember this defence had so many turnovers going its way last year um, and without that pass rush and as you said I wrote about in the article today it was the first point I mentioned about this team this year that you know those guys and we talked about it earlier those guys at the back end are going to have a tough a tough out because it doesn't matter who's covering who um, there's only so long you can do it uh, for um, and if you know if, if quarterbacks have got a free release clean pocket on five, six, seven dro- step drops it's a difficult one to, to, to defend regardless of who's back there. You could have, you know, four all pros in your secondary and cornerback and it, it would, you know, somebody would come loose. So it's interesting, but it's good to, you know, we're about 14 weeks away now from game time. Um, it's the golf classic today. Uh, Greg Grissom said 85% of tickets are uh, sold um, of season tickets. And for the first time as well this year, people will be able to to buy single game tickets early on, uh, which you predominantly that's been much later in the curve. So um, that probably yeah, probably uh, probably is a bit more flexibility uh, from the, the fan facing element of the organisation to try and get engagement. And also, there's probably an element of you know lost revenue coming out of COVID uh, eighteen month two year period that, that that's uh, that's missing and. You never know; they might sell some jerseys this year. I think that would have been safe to say it was the lowest of you know for a long time um, in terms of that. Still not seeing the, the rookie numbers, as we say. We're still not seeing the undrafted guys. So hopefully that kind of gets you a bit more in the weeds of this draft class. We're waiting on this schedule being announced, and we'll kind of have an idea of how the the shape of of the twenty twenty two season faces. But it's a it's an interesting but challenging slate for the Texans. But we've certainly feels like we've taken steps forward. People are excited and there's definitely some undrafted guys here to keep an eye on through training camp. But uh, Matt, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us this week again. And uh, we'll be back again next week um, to talk some schedule and a bit of rookie minicamp. 